The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. You only have it long enough to put the glass down and hit the head. Well, there's an old saying those, of some those, sort. Those of us with our original equipment might not have that issue. Oh, oh, okay. Well, so I guess I can't use this on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> In mine has uh, been enhanced. Um, so about three or four weeks ago, or three or four episodes ago, maybe more than that, uh, we talked about this, uh, this uh, uh, flying machine that we thought we could get Dave a ride on because they were selling rides on, on eBay. And uh turns out Dave missed his opportunity because uh, uh, someone actually did s- make a sufficient bid to buy a ride on the Martin Jetpack. Did you see this? Yeah, I, it was $35,000 short. I, yeah, I don't know. I was going to say. I had, I had 101 bucks. I would have been 101 Yeah, I know. I, I was going to ask, you know, who, who bid on this on behalf of, you know, uh, of uncontrolled airspace? Yeah, I know, really. And when are they going to let us know that we actually right. won? You know, uh, so uh, does it say in the story here who actually won it, or even what the nature of the person is? It's just I, you, you got to be serious to want to fly this thing, to spend thirty five thousand dollars to get what's probably going to be a ten minute flight, right? If that, right? Well, no, no, no. This is much more involved in that. A, what? A, a story I saw elsewhere. Talked about the, uh, the 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 ground school that you get to go through, and then the training you go through, and then multiple five to ten minute flights. Uh huh. It's not like insurance? they're turning you loose to go cross country. Well, I, I wouldn't have thought that, but is it in fact free flight, or, or are you tethered somehow? Uh, well, it's wh- supposed to work up to free flight. Uh huh. Although anything that costs thirty five thousand one hundred one dollars could hardly be considered free. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> there is that. I mean, that's that. I, there are a lot of jets that I can rent for hours and 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 only spend thirty five thousand one hundred one dollars. I know. And it comes with a pilot and fuel. Yeah. I but don't have you, to spend thousands to fly my butt over there to spend thirty five thousand one hundred one dollars. I still have my doubts about this aircraft, uh, this flying machine. I, it just. It feels like you're like really exposed. The picture that I'm looking at here is in this Avweb story. Um, I think I, I, there's another picture floating around that I can't seem to put my browser exposed. onto right now. Exposed. The guy's fully dressed. That shows it. That shows it a side view. All right, and it's basically this this jetpack, quote unquote, making little finger air quotes here, is is a fairly big big uh, uh, device um, and and the, basically the the pilot is just sort of hanging off the front of it you know and I'm just going whoa you know it's like those jetpack brochures you have a yeah, you have a jetpack well, you know it has just, landing gear so you uh, seriously yeah composite yeah. airframe v4 engine uh, uh, a couple hundred horsepower give it a seat and some sort of roll cage and I'd feel a little better but I guess not were you planning on rolling it? No, but if it's going to fall over on its nose, I don't want me to be not, the... Not, 
it's not going to fall over its nose. It's designed. It's not designed that way. Yeah. Okay. Famous you, last words. You have words. to have a little confidence here. Okay. Yeah, a little confidence is what I have here. I don't know. I'm not convinced. <laughs> but, uh, anyways, David, you, confidence you, in my ability to learn the machine uh, is not quite matched by my confidence in the machine. Uh, I gave up the idea of being, being test pilot a long time ago, but I will be an early adopter. Mm-hmm. So well, you'd still here's, say, here's, go ahead. Here, here, I'm just reading from the AvWeb story here. It says, presently, the aircraft is restricted to two meters in altitude, five knots left, right, and backward, and ten knots forward. Flights can be up to five minutes, according to the company, though we may go to ten in an indoor setting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know. <laughs> um, longer flights if you're indoors. <laughs> longer flights if you're indoors, um, which... You know, there's two issues with that. One is that, of course, you get longer flights when you're indoors. Second, of course, is that you're flying it indoors. <laughs> yeah. uh, that, 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 that does seem to be kind of a, uh, a, a difficult. I, I don't know if that's how a, far can you go in five minutes anyway. Well, I don't know if I don't know if being able or, or, or regularly flying it in indoors is a bug or a feature. Well, and, uh, you know. I'm the first person to say that one of the great joys of flying small aircraft from ultralights up to whatever is, you know, doing short hop flights. But when I think short hop flights, I actually think about going to another airport, not going and some, 30 feet. And some That's of them, a shorter you know, hop that is useful. Some of them actually start before dawn. <laughs> I've heard of those, Yeah. Um, yeah. So, anyways, David, you're still you're still willing to fly this one of these days? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I have no doubt that there will be a, a, a magazine willing to buy a pilot report on it. But it's going to yeah. take a little bit more than five minutes in a single stretch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, tell you what, the seven Dave, feet I can live with. Tell you what, Dave. Let me get your social security number. Offline's fine. Uh, I just I just want to make sure I can get a, a life insurance policy on you first. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Hey, if I'm making anybody rich, it's my wife and kids. <laughs> Welcome, folks. Not to episode... if I pay the premium. <laughs> Welcome, folks, to episode 157 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Getting Re- older by the week. Is, I know. Isn't there? Oh, it's 151. I was okay. Never mind. No, no, no. Yeah, right. Uh, recording this episode on Wednesday, October 14th, 2009. And uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar is, uh, first of all, Jeb Burnside, who's talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How you doing, Jeb? I'm fine, um, actually. Uh, but a good day today. I got my uh, latest issue of the magazine in the can. All right. And uh, uploaded and off my desk and you know, all that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm basking in the glow of, of having another issue of the magazine in the can. Good job. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah and uh, you, you went flying over the weekend. You, uh, I, I did. I went up to Georgia. I see uh, from my to, little special spy thing that uh, yeah. um, had to go up to Georgia. Uh, we can talk about that. Okay. Um, and also here in the hangar is uh, Dave Higdon, who's joining us from, uh, if, you read the, uh, if you read the media lately, uh, the soon-to-be-a-ghost-town, Wichita, Kansas. Uh, yeah, actually, there's only four houses left in town right now uh, uh, that have occupants. So. How you doing, David? How are you? What's going on? I'm waiting for the last person to leave so I can turn off the lights and run naked through the streets. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. We were only there for a week, that's, so what do we know? But 
That's a picture I don't want to see. I, I didn't see many food lines while we were there, um, but the press lately is like full of all these stories about how Wichita is just going to have a really hard time coming back from the uh, economic disaster. And uh, uh, what, what does it feel? What, what are people are people really that negative out there in Wichita, or what's the what's the mood? Uh, the mood's pretty constrained. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I got to admit that um, there's uh, not a lot of feeling of uh, celebratory uh, uh, attitude over how things are booming right now because, you know, just 12 months ago, the business jet industry in particular was headed to a record delivery number for 2008, and they set a record number in 2008. Um the rollback to what we are looking at for 2009, collectively as an industry and, and, and out of Wichita, is way, way below that record. Uh, 40% down, maybe a little more. Uh, for some companies, it's even farther than that when you get into the piston segment. Uh, that said, these numbers were being you know praised six or seven or eight years ago. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of all things are relative here. Uh, the problem is the pain and, and discomfort of the contraction that follows a ramp up of the of the extent that we had from 2002 through 2008, and the swell numbers and the huge expectations built on record backlogs on top of the record production and deliveries that they were experiencing. Uh, when that all came to a screeching freaking halt, suddenly all that infrastructure could come nowhere near supporting, uh, or they couldn't. It, it the, the sales couldn't support the infrastructure anymore. Right, right, yeah. But and, this uh, is nothing. This is nothing really new, though. <clears throat> it is me. not anything really new. This this, this industry has, has been industry. boom and bust. Yeah, this industry has been boom and bust ever since I've been paying attention to it. Um. There's and it, it, it's amazing how they let themselves get overloaded, know. <laughs> knowing well, that there's going to be a bust coming and denying it right to the end. Uh, NBAA last year and the year before, the 10-year forecast that came out of Honeywell and Rolls-Royce, uh, uh, you know, big makers of turbine engines for this business, along with other things, particularly in Honeywell's case, uh, you know, they were not looking at the kind of exponential growth that we'd just been experiencing, but they were looking at things only hitting a plateau about 2010 or 2011 and flattening out for a little bit at the elevated levels that they'd reached and then resuming slow growth through the latter part of those 10-year cycles. Mm -hmm. And the economy 12 months back was already showing signs of things going haywire. Right. And it was like nobody was reading the tea leaves. They were too busy sopping up the tea with their biscuit. And then all of a sudden, you know, the tea's gone. The leaves are there. And somebody goes, oh, crap, this is falling yeah. apart. I'll tell you, though, the analysis that I saw that was a bit sobering, that I thought uh, was sobering anyways, was um, one one person suggested that, what might happen is that as manufacturing begins to ramp back up, the manufacturers might choose to use this as an opportunity to move that manufacturing offshore or outside of Wichita. And well, we're, we're already seeing some of that. Um, yeah, that's true. Um, Hawker Beechcraft 
is is building um, fuselages, I believe, in um, in Mexico. Um, they moved shipping. wiring harnesses down there yeah. years ago. Yeah, uh, and, and shipping the completed, the fabricated components back to Wichita for final assembly. Uh, Cessna, of course, is uh, uh, offshoring, if you will, um, production and initial assembly of the uh, 162 Skycatcher. Um, once they're uh, uh, once the production test flight is flown, they're disassembled, crated, or, or uh, containerized. It would be a better word. And uh, shipped to Wichita, and they'll be assembled uh, on Midcontinent Airport. Well, actually, they'll be as- they'll be assembled in three different locations around the country. Yeah, Wichita is one of the three. Yeah, where are the other two? I don't remember off the top, but there's a East Coast one and a West Coast. Cessna yeah, basically of them, vertically yeah. divided the country into thirds. Yeah, one of them is in California. I don't know where the eastern one is. Uh, but th- there's a couple of things to remember in play here. First off bringing production back up to meet a turnaround such as is expected not for two maybe three years here well big surprise no one's predicting much different for any other part of the economy either well yeah they say and we may have bottomed out here in terms of the depth of the recession uh Companies are shedding jobs at a slower rate, even here in town. Uh, not the draconian cuts that we were seeing earlier in the year. Uh, and the recovery is going to be slow, and it's going to be slow across, it looks like, all business lines, except maybe credit cards and health insurance. Yeah. Which, if those industries get their way, are headed for some of their best years ever. Right. But anyway, uh, yeah. First of all, the 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 idea of there being a um, a bust in the general aviation industry after several boom years should not come as a shock to anybody. Um, Amen. The the, the 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 production line people are taking the biggest hit. Management, excuse me, management as usual isn't going to take a big hit over the long term. Um, but. Uh, you know, it, it will turn around, and, and it's just uh, um, I won't say a. a parakeet in the coal mine, um, but there is a, a, a well-defined relationship between uh, uh, general aviation, business aviation, whichever you wish to call it, and the economy. And you could go back and track their various curves and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of predict, if you will, um, either when overall recovery will start and or uh, when recovery of the general aviation industry will start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, David, we're we're counting on you to kind of get things geared up and 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 running again out there because we've been there now and we have we're gonna have to come back and we want it to well, continue I've, to I've, be the air capital of the world. I've already got a rivet gun and bucking bars, so uh, there we go. There we go. We're gonna we're gonna re we're gonna reignite the industry from Earl's hangar, and uh, the rest will be history. Yeah. And I am Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from, <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Talking to you from the home office in Dover, New Hampshire. So uh, I went flying the other day. Uh, I, uh, you, you only beat me by about three seconds on that. I hadn't you forgotten. Are. Not this time, anyways. Um, I, you may recall last week um, I, I had spent the day at the airport hoping to fly and being unable to fly because the winds were really nasty and squirrely and gusty and 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 uh, and above my comfort level on uh, on that day um but i was you so by the airplane 
No, I'll come back to that too. Um, but I was so jonesing to go flying after our week in Wichita that uh, that uh, when I couldn't go flying on Wednesday, I just went right back on Thursday and uh, and went flying on Thursday. The winds were actually a little bit, still a little bit exciting or interesting. Let's put it uh, on on Thursday. Um, but I went and I reserved the 172 and uh, and uh, went out and. Uh, uh, you know, kind of sniffed the winds and everything was fine and seemed to be within my comfort zone. So uh, pre-flighted up and, and launched and uh, uh, went on a little joyride, went, flew up sort of towards uh, the Lake Winnipesaukee, you know, kind of the, to the beginning of the, of the mountains up near Mount Washington and whatnot, and then turned around and headed back down to the coast and flew along the, uh, the coast for a little while. And then I did something I'd been sort of doing in my head for a while. I've always wanted, I've been wanting to do ever since I took the instrument ground school, which is that I flew the, um, in VFR, you know, with my head looking out the window and all, but I flew the approach, the ILS-7 into Sanford. Um, I had been looking at it on the charts all along, and I said, well, you know, I wonder how hard it really is to fly this thing, you know, and uh, just to kind of follow the course by, you know, VORs and whatnot. And so that was kind of interesting to uh, what did, what did you go learn? back with a hood and a safety pilot. I, I intend to one of these days for sure, but I wanted to do it just on mm-hmm. my own, just to get a kind of feeling for, you know, it's like you, you, you fly these things in your, in, you know, in your head, you know, looking at the charts and I've actually flown it in uh, the flight simulator on my computer. Um, I wanted to see what it really looked like, you know, over the ground, so to speak, and uh, it was it was interesting uh, experiment, and uh, um, I basically managed to stay on course the whole way, and uh, uh, found all the different uh, waypoints. And uh, um, here's the reason. Here's the reason that you, you know, well, you, a it's it's good that you did this, um, but even if you um, uh, were paying more attention to the gauges. Uh, to, to control the airplane's attitude, uh, and, and as well as look for traffic at the same time, of course. But even if you were paying more attention to the gauges, you still have that peripheral vision that will show you instantaneously any change in the airplane's attitude. Yeah, I mean, so it, it wasn't so much try, an experiment. Try it soon with a hood. And yeah, a, and so, I, I want to try it with a hood, and it would, that was not the intent of the experiment. The no, intent no, no, of no. the experiment was more to see if I really understood how to navigate um, you know that that way, and whether I could follow the course. Uh, it, and, it, it, no, no question. That's a, that's a good thing to do. It's a good absolutely. start. It, it it'll get you used to looking at how the needles respond. Well, there's and that, and start to and, give you a feel for how you need to respond to the needles. And yeah. and, and finding what the power settings should be, and what right. the pitch attitudes should be, things like that is, you know, once you figure out what power settings give you what performance. Um, it's real easy to fly instruments. Yeah. yeah. Now, I picked up the ILS probably 15 miles out, 10 miles out, something like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, and I, I wanted to make some sort of call on the, uh, on the uh, traffic frequency. I, I wasn't sure exactly what call I might make. Um, okay. Where were you in relation to the airport? I was about, say, call it 13 miles out on final to runway 7. That's the call. Yep, and do you characterize it as, you know, flying the ILS, or do you, you kind of leave that? You can say out? that if you want, but the important thing I want to know: I don't care if you're flying the ILS, uh, the GPS, or what approach you're flying. I don't have that played out. What I want to know is your is your position to yeah. the airport, and and perhaps also your altitude. If you want to throw in there and on the ILS two three left, um, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I want to know the the distance and the azimuth. 
Yeah, and that's I, what I, 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 I would. I wouldn't drop in the ILS. I, I would drop in on a straight-in approach because yeah. that's going to mean be a lot more meaningful to the guys yeah. that can't visualize the ILS. I mean, when you're when you're flying the ILS approach, you're not usually 15 miles and straight in. You're coming in bound for an intersecting angle from uh, from some procedure turn. Uh, well, not that it doesn't happen occasionally that they'll run you out that far and run you straight in, but most of the time, little guys like us get vectored in somewhere closer, right? And and we'll pick up the uh, localizer, and as that needle centers up, you roll out on it, and that's generally you know maybe five, six, seven miles on the outside. How far? So I just tell them I was on the straight in approach and let them visualize that. Now you got well, me wondering. That, here, that's that's certainly an option too, but again, I just want to know where you are. Um, exactly. Altitude wouldn't hurt anything either if you're if you're descending. Say, um, uh, let me put it another way: if you're above two thousand, uh, uh, greater than two thousand feet above ground level, I'd like to know that too. I'd like yeah. to know Otherwise, I'm going to assume you're you're an immediate problem you're doing. Well, and in fact, I, I sort of did what you just suggested. About ten miles out, I just sort of made a normal, you know, in-range call to to traffic, and right. and uh, I did not call out the on on final to seven because what I was really effectively on, coincidentally, was on the forty-five to the run to, to the active runway um, at that point. So that's what I called in on. And uh, and by the way, so this is where it got interesting. This is where it got interesting. The uh, the, the the you know pretend uh, instrument flying or tracking the ILS aside. Um, so at, as I sort of got, you know, five miles out, so to speak, I broke off from this whole thing and started to fly a normal, uh, uh, you know, um, non-tower airport arrival. And uh, when I took off, the winds were about 10 knots, pretty much straight down the runway and, uh, and uh, 10 knots, which is fine with me, no big deal. By the time I got back, uh, listening to the AWOS on the field, the winds were like 13, 14 knots, gusting 21, and they were about 10 or 15 Ooh. degrees off the ah. runway. Okay, and uh, it it was really dramatically illustrated to me when I so like I said, I'm kind of tracking down. Uh, I don't know if you guys can visualize the airport, but uh, um, two runways. One is three two. I guess that makes it what uh, uh, one four or something like that. Right. Um, right. And then the other one is sort of not quite 90 degrees. It's 257, all right? Um, and I was tracking in on 7, all right? And that sort of also puts me on sort of the left 45 for 32, which is where I wanted to land, okay? So I broke off from my little pretend approach, all right? And now I'm just sort of on a more or less normal 45, uh, uh, you know, into the downwind. And I suddenly realized and that... This is when I've really realized how strongly the winds were blowing because I had to put this massive crab angle in. I mean, I was just like 20 degrees off of the course I was trying to follow. Um, and it was just a really weird feeling. You know, and this is one of the things that I've, I always have to kind of fight this a little bit as a pilot because I, I can be easily disoriented by the motion of the ground under my plane when I'm in the pattern, um, when the winds are really blowing. And in this particular case, the winds were sort of blowing pretty hard, you know, sort of roughly down that runway. And so suddenly I'm on, I'm on the 45 ar arriving at downwind, and I'm just like clearly being blown sideways, and I've got to put all this crab in in order to just, just track towards the runway. And, and then you turn downwind, and you're like, booking you know i mean you're just like going all right you know and so things are happening really fast now 
and uh and and then I and this story got kind of interesting. It's been a while since I've flown in this kind of gusty conditions, and so I wasn't. I was a little unclear on what the proper procedure, what the kind of how to how to adjust for this whole thing, you know. And uh, the main thing I had in my head was uh, higher approach speed, just maintain more speed uh, in case I needed it. Um, and how much? How much more approach speed? What's the rule? The rule of thumb is half the gust or half the gust difference, right? And so that's basically what I was doing. All right. So speed-wise, I think I was good. The part that I really got a little, I I got a little confused about was how much flaps I ought to be using in this circumstance. Whether I should using normal flaps or using less flaps, it was aggravated by the fact that earlier when I was in the run-up area getting ready to go, and I was watching somebody else come in and land. and he had made some comment on the frequency about how windy it was. And uh, he chose to land no flaps. And I was watching him float down the runway, you know, and uh, I'm thinking, What oh, were you flying again? 172M. Yeah, no flap. Well, okay. And so, what? Okay. Well, here's what I did, and then you guys can critique me. All right. So um, the other thing I got a little confused, a little disoriented or, or kind of uh, unclear on was that I, for some reason, I got in my head that I should make, I should extend my downwind. All right, thinking, forgetting that's probably the opposite of what I should have done because the wind blowing on my nose like that, you know, it's like I could have had a short uh, base to final, and uh, everything worked out fine. So, anyways, I flew a long downwind. I turned base. I'm concentrating on not watching the ground or any more than necessary, anyways, so that I don't get disoriented with all this getting pushed sideways stuff because I have, in the fact, in in the past, gotten fairly confused. It just, and, and just all gets... of a sudden, the runway is trending up in the windshield. Yeah, okay, yeah. And so I'm turning final. I'm flying down final. At this point, I've got maybe half flaps, maybe a little less than half flaps. And I'm thinking, okay, that seems about right. And the, I'm, you know, I'm mostly paying attention just to airspeed control because I'm figuring that's got to be the most important thing, you know, I guess after making the runway. And, uh, and here's where it got a little weird. And maybe people are going to give me a hard time about this, but here's what I did. I'll confess. On short final, it suddenly seemed to me, let's put in the rest of the flaps. All right. And so I did. I put in all the rest of these flaps. Uh, and I don't know whether it was the flaps that did this or whether I hit some sink at the exact same time. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly the airplane is, is settling like crazy. All right, The airplanes are going down and going, oh, this is not good. you know. And so uh, I suddenly add all this power, and I'm going, you know, I see the threshold, the end of the runway coming at me. I'm going, well, this would be really embarrassing to not make this runway. you know. And so I'm like pumping in the power and uh, watching the airspeed all this time, trying to keep everything under control. And I'm kind of satisfied that I'm doing an okay job um, of correcting anyways, if not having gotten myself into the situation. And uh, finally, I realized, okay, I've got the runway made. I've got the runway made, and I, uh, so I reduce power, and I start to flare, and I'm telling you, I did the shortest rollout, landing rollout that I've ever done in my entire life. I mean, it was like, <laughs> it was like, hovering and touching down i mean it was just really astounding uh you know this this uh this runway there like i said there's intersecting runways and you're, you're normally you float past the intersecting runway you know and then you roll out to where the taxiway is like halfway down the runway and and i came down and i'm going and first of all i did this gorgeous just i mean it was like a 
Jeb Burnside landing. I mean, I was like, you know, just kiss the ground, you know, just kind of settle. So I make out the gently. check to you directly, or should <laughs> I, I just, just make it up? Some, it was it was somewhere. gorgeous. <laughs> it was gorgeous. I mean, it's kind of like this settling kiss in just my center line, and it was just like touch the running, and it was just very gentle, and it was like, and I and I'm looking around, I'm going, I'm hardly moving at all here. What the heck is this all about? You know, and suddenly the airplane is stopped, and I haven't even reached the intersecting runway, and I'm going, wow, that was that was interesting. That was different, and. Uh, and now I'm confronted with the possibility, you know, I'm thinking, well, do, so now do I add power and taxi the rest of the way? Because it's kind of a fair amount, you know, we've probably got 2,000 you, feet. Do you just shut down here and take pictures? <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> so, and so I'm coming up on this intersecting runway, and in, in, I'm thinking, you know, if I just take a right on this intersecting runway and back taxi for, you know, 100 feet, then I'm, I'm at the taxiway, the parallel taxiway. And that way I'm clear of the runway just in case there's anybody else behind me. And I'm thinking, you know, because I'm thinking I don't want to be tying up this runway any longer than necessary and there's a lot of taxiing to do on the runway to get all the way down to the normal turnout so i did in fact i called out on the frequency i said i'm turning right on two five uh, to back taxi on two five i'm going to get on echo and i did this and i felt kind of proud of myself oh cool i did you know clear the runway and this is all good and then i'm taxiing on echo thinking to myself wait a minute this is the taxiway that people usually taxi in the other direction to get down to the run-up area you know what happens now if i come nose to nose with someone who's trying to fortunately i didn't but uh Anyways, it was an interesting flight. Like I said, the wind was howling pretty good by the time I came home, and uh, and uh, and that landing. I'll just I I don't think it'll be a long time before I forget this landing because it was just amazing. After I, you know, got over that little sink at the you know or on short final, but just the feeling of how it just kind of flared out and just gently touched down, and it was just it was and hardly moving at all. I'm telling Mr. you, I rolled. Mr. Jangles and I rolled, gently touched down. I don't know. I, I should have measured it or something, but it seemed like I rolled a few airplane lengths. It must have been more than that, but it didn't seem like I rolled very far. It, it may pretty, not have been, man. I mean, a lightly loaded Skyhawk with full flaps in, yeah. into, into 20 knots. Um, you're not going to roll that far. No. Yeah, you're not going to roll <laughs> so, out there. So that was pretty, pretty cool. I don't know how, how safe or unsafe it was. I was pretty careful about airspeed control, so I don't think I ever got close. I mean, I think well, I was good in that regard, including the added, added, added airspeed. You know, two, and, two, uh, two thoughts for you one and you just you just hit the nail on the head that's what happens when you control your airspeed bingo make good landings Ah, it's very simple um and and i think you you, not that you needed to but i mean that's a great example not that you needed it but that's a great example of of what can result uh the second thing is um we we touched on it earlier in, in this thread um, is uh, how much flap is appropriate. Um, that's something that, you know, you, the pilot, have to decide. Some people like to try it with no flaps. Uh, when the wind is right down the runway, I don't really care as long as I make the runway. When the and wind's I'll, down the, the runway, that's yeah. a different story to me. Yeah. If it's, if it's honking, if it's a 45 or even a 90-degree cross, um, <clears throat> then I'll think long and hard. A lot of the answer depends on the length of the runway and, uh, you know, traffic situation, the, the airport environment generally. Um, the FAA long ago decreed a normal landing, and you get to pick what normal means, but a normal landing is a full flap landing. I don't know that they've changed that policy in the intervening time, um, but I generally try to use as much flap as, as I can. Uh, I usually will use all of it, mm-hmm. whether I'm in a lightly loaded Skyhawk or my debonair or, or something else. 
Yeah. I actually noticed that when I was flying with you, um, that you almost always went to full flaps at some point. And, uh, well, I always, always did. Not, not, not an almost to it. Always, okay. Well, I, I only noticed it almost. No, that's okay. But, yeah. that's okay. Um, so anyways, uh, the things that I think I would do different here, um, is, uh, is that I wouldn't have turned, turned base so far down, so far extended because that was just unnecessary. Um, and, uh, in retrospect, I, 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 I probably would not have added that last bunch of flaps um, because I was actually in good shape. And the other thing and I would have done, I would not have aimed for the threshold. I was aiming for the numbers, and uh, in retrospect, I would have aimed much further down the runway. It, that I was can kinda... be a little bit dicey on a gusty day because yeah. what gusts up always gusts down. One way or the other. And if you got, if you aim for the end, the very end of the runway when you're at the peak of the wind, you're 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 going to get a little farther along if when the wind dies down, but if the wind gets stronger, and that's your aim point, uh, then you're looking at adding power uh, mm-hmm. to 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 keep it going. And, and there's obviously nothing wrong with adding power. No, there's not a thing wrong with adding right. power. But if you go back to that maintaining control that Jeb was talking about for the instrument stuff, learning what the power setting is to get you down at a certain airspeed and, and, and angle uh, is the key to instrument flight, and they teach you to adjust power rather than airspeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you learn to do that kind of in the blind, well and good. But when you got really gusty conditions like that, it, it always seems a little more comfortable to me to put the aim point a little farther down the runway. Right. That point that... You know, it's not supposed to gust this much more, but it does anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I would uh, do that. And uh, and almost every Cessna demo pilot that I've ever flown with has said that they really don't use full flap except for uh, descents into runways where they've got to clear an obstacle at the end because it just so increases drag that you get this really steep, down angle, and you got to add a lot of power to maintain it. And when the winds are more nominal, taking all that away can make the landing a little bit interesting. Because uh, I always thought it was kind of strange that they put in forty degrees worth of flaps in there, but then advise you not to use the last ten. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. um, first of all, it always depends on the airplane. You know, I mean, some, this some is airplanes don't have flaps. Which model too? Um, yeah. So, and then you've got, um, you know, Skyhawks specifically that basically come in two flavors. Well, the, the flaps switches and activation itself comes in many different flavors. But the flap system, I mean, the, uh, the, the flaps themselves deploy in two flavors. One is 30 degrees and one is 40 degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jack, you were flying a 40-degree airplane. That's correct. Uh, the later models are, are 30 degrees, and there's, I think, I think it's... Um, it might be the N, the November version that uh, model that started with 30 degrees. It might be a later version, a uh, later model. But uh, the older Skyhawks even have a Johnson bar. It's not electric. You know, you got you got a handle on oh, the floor. You pull the handle for the for the flaps. And I love I loved manual flaps on the Comanche. I, I do too. Yeah, I'll tell you, I would the, prefer the that. The I used to fly, yeah, all, all had that. And, yeah, exactly. The Archer I used Archers I used to fly had that. And uh, well, in the kind of day Jack's describing. Going in in the uh, Comanche with the second notch of flaps, which was, uh, you know, uh, about equated to 30 degrees. Uh, not the the full flaps, 
but going in and the instant I got the mains on the ground, stow those flaps, and suddenly the airplane is so far above touchdown speed. I mean, it, it or so far above uh, stall speed, it just plants itself. Right. And mm-hmm. made it feel on the ground much more solidly than while I still had flaps and the stall speed was a lot lower. Uh, now, that was a that was a trick that was taught to me by a longtime Comanche driver who was a CFI. And I know your mileage may vary, and, and, and it's going to be different on a high wing, I think, than a low wing. But uh, it taught me something about my preference for the instant response that you get with manual flaps over waiting for the jack screws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So... Uh... So that was my flying adventure. Um, and cool. Sounds like fun and educational. Yeah. Education's always good. Yeah. And it, so, get, and it uh, gave us something to talk about for 15 minutes. I know, yeah. Um, so uh, just to give you an update, uh, there's no update on the uh, Jack buying a 150 story. Um, I just haven't made any progress. Um, well, and I, you've been getting some input on the forums pages. Where, I have. You know, it, it's very obvious that people do pay attention to our conversations. I know. Go figure, huh? Um, so I just haven't had a chance to follow up on any of that, and I'm going to continue through the process at some point. But w- one thing I realized, and I have to figure out exactly how to address this because I'm torn, um, it, it occurs to me that uh, this is a very, you know, usually you talk with your buddies about you're thinking about buying an airplane. The problem I have is that we've got thousands of my buddies listening, um, and more to the point, there's a very good possibility that there's at least one person from the who works close with, or in fact, the seller himself, um, uh-huh. listening to this podcast. And so it suddenly occurred to me that to the extent I was talking about my mindset and my attitude and how much I wanted it or how much I didn't want it, that maybe I was kind of like, you know, uh, uh, damaging my negotiating uh, uh, position. Um, so I don't know. I don't want to not talk about it because I think it's an interesting thing to talk about, certainly with you guys and, and, and also, you know, with our listeners. Um, but on the other hand, I don't also want to screw myself up here. So, so anyways, but in any event, there hasn't been any progress in the past week, and uh, I'm going to follow through on some of the things we talked about, and some of those things I'll report on here on the podcast, and others, not so much. <laughs> others, not so much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, off-field landing of the week. David, you called our attention to this one. You want to talk about it a little bit here? This is a uh, the headline from the DetroitNews.com, DebtNews.com. That's because probably someone scooped up the name Detroit News. Um, DebtNews.com, the headline is Pilot Escapes Small Plane Crash in Troy. So what's yeah, the deal? What, uh, what, what, what intrigued me about this is that you know occasionally one of us has to put one down in some place other than our planned destination or a designated runway as this gentleman uh, had to do uh, up at Oakland Troy Airport. Uh, He was leaving Oakland Troy Airport about 4 p.m. when the four-seat plane began to malfunction, according to the story. What intrigued me about this was that he managed, according to the story, this is direct, he managed to steer the falling aircraft past the Walmart on West Maple and land safely on grass nearby, police said. Uh, damage was minor, pilot walked away, yada, yada, yada. And I was just thinking, 
man, it's good he didn't try to stuff it in between the narrow-ass aisles of a Walmart. Yeah, I know. No, well, you just put your finger on the thing that I find most notable about this story, all right? It is a very brief little story um, from a mainstream media source, but as you just said, in the first paragraph, he uses the phrase, crashed, in, lost power, and crashed into a field. But then a couple paragraphs later, he says, and landed safely on the grass. And I'm right. thinking... Landed it, safely it, on the it grass. Is kind of, it is Crashed. kind of dichotomous, is it not? Yeah. Clearly he wanted that good juicy phrase in the first graph here, but uh, uh, he got it a little bit more right a little bit later on. So uh, anyway. Well, even, the, even the headline writer put the word crash in the head. Yeah, well, you know, that goes without saying. Well, they got, you know, so, well, headline writer may not have read past the first bloody paragraph. That's true. I mean, you yeah. know, uh, depending on the copy desk set up and how many reporters are handling and the deadline. This was about 9 p.m., it says. So if this was uh, a dead rush to make a 10 o'clock cutoff to get into print. Yeah, this is a 10 o'clock. This is a 10-minute story, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, So, well, congratulations to this pilot for getting on the ground safely for for crashing into any landing from which you walk away. That's right. Yeah. Now this is uh, Oakland Troy Airport um, near Detroit. Um, I, is this? I wonder. We should talk to uh, 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 Stephen Force. Um, he flies out of. I, I know of it as Pontiac, but I think it's also called Oakland. I wonder if this is the same airport. And I don't think so. I you think, think it's a it different is. a different airport? Okay. Well, in any event, you know, um, uh, Steve may have a uh, have some insights into this for us, and maybe maybe we'll hear from him. But congratulations! Well, if anybody else has an insight into Oakland uh, Troy Airport? Put it on the forums page. That's true. Uh, I guess I guess Steve's not the only one who flies out of that area, right? Yeah. So. I'd be really, 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 really yeah. surprised. We got an email uh, a couple weeks ago, and that's kind of been in the hopper for a little while because we were traveling and so forth. But I really wanted to uh, to read a little bit of this email because this is just an awesome story. This is from uh, a listener who go who's uh, and he puts his name in the. Um, I guess he uses his full name in the forum, so I will. David Spears or Spires, S P E Y E R S. Um, and uh, he, he sent us a really nice email. Um, I'm not going to read the entire email, but I'm going to read a fairly four or five paragraphs here. A little about myself here. He says, I've been a pilot for the last six years and have been fortunate enough to earn an AMP as well. I'm currently living in Peru, South America, where I fly for a missionary organization. He writes, we transport missionaries, supplies, and do medical evacuation flights all throughout the jungle of Peru. It makes for some very interesting flying, as many of the places we go are only accessible by boat or by walking through the thick jungle foliage. He says a 50-minute flight can save over two weeks of travel via the river system. And he then goes on to say, of course, there is the challenge of landing on unimproved grass runways and flying without radar coverage or any form of weather reporting, but the biggest challenge has to be dealing with the bureaucracy of a third world country. For every flight, he writes, we ta- that which we take, we have to file a flight plan, pay for the use of the airspace, and in parens he writes user fees, and also provide the government with a passenger manifest. Uh, needless to say, he writes, when I go back to the States, I enjoy taking my friend Stinson up for a pancake breakfast or a flight along the shore of Lake Michigan without the hassle of needless paperwork. I hope the TSA and Homeland Security never get that bad in the USA. 
He also writes, if you're interested, I have a blog that talks about some of my experiences and has pictures of flying down here in Peru. And that is uh, www.davidspears.blogspot.com. That's David, D-A-V-I-D-S-P-E-Y-E-R-S.blogspot.com. Uh, in case you wanted to know, we have three Cessna 206 airplanes. One is on straight floats, and one is turbocharged. We pay $7 a gallon for Avgas, and we fly about 1,200 hours a year, split between three pilots, all from the USA. Communications are all done in Spanish. Uh, he says we could speak English, but our Spanish is better than the controller's English. Uh, he also says there's no GA here whatsoever. There are only about 50 piston-powered aircraft in the whole country, and all of them are working are working airplanes, uh, cargo tours, transportation, etc. So one of the things that I miss is GA like we have in the States. He says, I got to go to Oshkosh this past year and thought that it would have blown people's minds in Peru if they, would have, if they could be able to see 10,000 airplanes gathered all at one airport. And so uh, that's just part of the email that I got from David Spares, um, who signs, his, signs himself, Missionary Pilot Slash Mechanic, Peru, South America. That's a, just a cool story. I mean, it's just like, you know... You know, it is. you know, um, we spend so much time trying to trying to educate folks about the value of GA here in the states. There are places around the world where it is just awesomely and and without a doubt valuable. And uh, what a flying adventure, huh? Well, and I, I, I shared a converse, a shared uh, seating with a gentleman coming out of Appleton, Wisconsin, this year after Oshkosh, uh, who uh, flew for one of the missionary. Uh, organizations, and he'd been in Oshkosh all week, uh, working the uh, the uh, just the area where they were showing off philanthropic flight and, and mm-hmm. public benefit flying. And uh, really sharp gentleman, and uh, very dedicated to the work he's doing. And uh, they do these rotations where people go in country for a while and are back in the states for a while. Uh, they operate in a world without anywhere near the kind of support that we're spoiled by here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you got to tip your hat to them because uh, they're doing, doing important work, and they're doing important work that only can be done by small airplanes. And it's worthwhile remembering that some similar kind of work goes on here in the U.S. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Rick Durden, uh, who, whom we've had on the podcast before, um, has flown often um, um, in, um, this kind of flight, uh, these kinds of flights. Um, Honduras, I believe, was his, uh, his locale. Uh, might have been Belize, I'm not sure. But um, uh, he, he just got a huge uh, kick out of it. Um, I forget what they were flying. I think they were flying tail draggers. I think they were flying... Might have been flying 206s, might have been flying 185s and 180s or something like that. Um, but he, he always spoke very highly of it. I don't know if he's still doing it or not. I suspect he, he probably is, but I don't know for certain. Did you guys ever think about, you know, running away and joining the Peace Corps and being a pilot or whatever? Yeah. Absolutely. Why not? Um, too many responsibilities. Yeah, that's true. Family and all, right? I could have done it. You guys are the ones that had the responsibility in the family. And the... At, at our core, we wound up being a little bit selfish about our lives, and uh, others not so much. Yeah, I mean, raising this, raising this is... family and children, that's just incredibly selfish of you, David and Jeb. But, uh... Well, I mean, in terms of some of the choices we make, and uh, 
the you know other folks make different choices and and then even people who don't go off to third world countries to contribute to uh to uh the betterment of mankind still do that kind of thing here i've been uh, uh second in command on some angel flights with a friend of mine who does it quite regularly uh i did a couple of uh pet airlifts uh several years ago uh you know it's whatever and a bunch of young eagle flights I, I, the biggest thing i re, I, I regret about not having an airplane right now is not being able to do young eagle flights so mm-hmm. yeah. Well, yeah one of the biggest things the other one's not being able to fly yeah got to check out his blog it's got some really cool stuff um a lot of pictures from his adventures down there um airplanes out in the jungle uh you know interesting uh, uh shots from the air of the terrain that he flies over um it's it's pretty fascinating stuff and uh we thank david for uh, for sharing this with us it's pretty cool i'm i'm embarrassed to admit that uh, did we meet David at Oshkosh, or uh, I, I don't recall meeting him? I don't recall meeting him either. He, he I don't recall hearing either. these stories from right. anyone I met at yeah. Oshkosh. Uh, and I, I, I'm embarrassed to admit that we met a bunch of really interesting people, and, and all of their names didn't. I'm terrible at names, and so all of their names didn't didn't click. But uh, what, what, what was your name again? Yeah, right. Um, but anyways, thank very, you, David. Very for, cool, for sh- 206 on flows. That's cool. Sharing this with us. Maybe that's your airplane, right? Yeah, a couple of pictures of it here on the blog. and uh, yeah. Cool stuff. You got a track? Anyways, where are we here? Let's see now. Um, oh, so this is interesting. We're running out of time fast. No, no, no. no. We, got, we got all night. Um, you might. There's this story that's been in the news over the last few days about this new aircraft tracking system that they're trying out in Colorado. Um, when I first heard about this, when I first heard the headlines, I thought, oh, this is some sort of uh, ADSB installation that they're trying out out there. But when I read the stories, it's apparently not. It's a, a different kind of system. In one place I saw it referred to as a wide area, wide area multilateration system. Multi- Lateration system. That's what they wrote. Um, it apparently has to do with scattering receivers all over an area and then receiving the radio transmissions from aircraft multiple times on these different antennas and then calculating the delay between um, how long it took for the signal. They can do this down to like the billionth of a second and as a result they can triangulate on the location of aircraft simply based on listening to their radio transmissions. Oh, it's and, so hot when you talk to Geometry. Yeah, so I, I, I'm I'm just beside myself here. That is pretty much 120 percent of what I know about this. Um, you guys are more plugged in. Do you know anything about this? Is this uh, for real? I don't. Is, I don't know anything about it specifically, but it sounds a lot like the old, um, not really lamented, transponder landing system or TLS. It, it, it's related. Yeah, yeah, which which used um, transponder returns. And some processing and an antenna, a single uh, antenna, as I recall, to basically set up uh, um, with little preparation uh, an ILS, a precision landing system, at you know the runway of your choice. Um, I don't know what happened to that technology. It was advertised maybe fifteen or twenty years ago. Uh, well, really state of Wisconsin was it, state of Wisconsin was actually right. putting it that's in right. at a bunch of airports fifteen years ago. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I forgot about that. Um, uh, whatever happened to it, I don't know. But it's, it, it sounds like certainly not the same technology, but using the same principle. Um, and I think 
as I recall, some of the, the head scratching at the time was had something to do with the effect that can transponders or do transponders um, respond quickly enough? Do they update and, and is the resolution fine enough? Right. You know, for example, uh, uh, the standard mode C transponder only um, uh, has granularity down to 100 feet. Is that sufficient? Other uh, mode C encoders, uh, let me rephrase this. The, the, the standard mode C encoder only has resolution to 100 feet. Others, uh, perhaps not standard uh, um, encoders, will go down to 10 feet. Obviously, I'd like kind of like to have the, the finer resolution. So is that a requirement? Is that uh, a part of the deal? I, I'd like to know. I'd like to know a little bit more about this. Well, the uh, the multilateration system that, uh, that Jack highlighted for us is actually being adopted in some other countries. Uh, well, multilateration uh, sounds like something that would that would come out of the State Department. Yeah. Okay. As opposed to the FAA. And, and there, yeah, there's something to that. Yeah. Now that you mention it. Uh, so I, I take it, it, it that it's neither... also something ahead, similar David. is also being used to help uh, improve. Uh, Positioning around airports for high density traffic movement and 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 higher volume landing rates at some places, and I believe Australia is experimenting with it. There's nothing new on the sun anymore. Re- oh, see, wait a minute, hang on, I got to read from the other story here. <laughs> I was reading from a story. <laughs> I'm sorry, I uh, I'm reading from a story from um from our 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 latest greatest favorite aviation publication USA Today. So uh, let's <laughs> let's not do that. Let's re- let's read from the story that's in uh, AOPA online. Uh, uh, unfortunately, there was a really good description of it in the USA Today story, but uh, it's an interesting technology. Um, I, I also am vaguely familiar. I have a vague recollection of that of that uh, transponder-based system that you were talking about. This seems technologically a little more plausible, um, especially 15 years down the line. Um, the idea that you could have multiple re- antennas receiving the same signal and measuring to the you know, few billionths of a second, the different timing, um, and thus you do the math. It's plausible to me that you could, in fact, determine location of all of the aircraft transmitting in you know in that listening area. Um, and whether or not this technology pans out, this is a great example of why I am so suspicious about this 10, 15-year rollout of ADSB, because by the time you know that that deadline date that's out in the future for ADSB adoption comes around all right ADSB will be ancient technology we will have come up with four or five new th- ideas on how to do this stuff and well it's uh, it's, it's it new ideas are going to come along yeah you can't stop and say well i i don't want to adopt this because there may be something coming along better next year at some point you have to stop cutting bait and go fish and that's 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 what is happening here with next gen and ADSB, and we're about a decade into them deciding that this was a point where we were going to adopt because it solves so many problems for such a long term period and provides so many advantages if the FAA adopts the the capabilities that are available and does it smartly, and that remains to be seen. Yeah. Uh, but you, you you know think about your work in computers. 
there's always the promise of something better coming along. Oh, I'll wait right. on that. Oh, wait. If you'd taken that approach to buying a personal computer, you'd still be using a Mac SE 30 on a desk and you wouldn't be able to haul it around anywhere. Exactly. That's exactly my point. All right. You know, no, and I think you, that you the look FAA. At it backwards, the decision's been made. The, 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 the program's going forward. They're not waiting to start ADSB, it's already a third of the way through. The problem is that the FAA has this mindset. They are just, they're stuck in this idea that whatever they embrace has to be this centralized, national, all-encompassing system. And they don't realize that that's not the way technology works these days. No, but it has to be the way air traffic works. No, 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 not necessarily. All right. I mean, admittedly, it's a little tougher to do a decentralized uh, uh, kind of system. All right. But you can do it faster and you can iterate it more. All right. So in the long run, it's going to work out better. All right. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying I know how to implement it. All right. But the reality of technology these days is that it is decentralized. It is iterative. It changes quickly and you got to get past the idea that you're going to embrace a system that is going to be the system for the next 15 years. So, so what are you just... saying here that the government, uh, the FAA, as the air traffic control operators of record, has to be willing to adopt whatever new technology comes along to accommodate whoever decides to put that in their airplanes? How I'm many systems she... should they be in it? Be, how many systems should they have to integrate to show up on one kind of radar screen? Yeah. Obviously, it can't be a total Wild West thing. It can't be an unlimited thing. But the re- uh, but I think that they should figure out how to support more than one at a time because that's the way it's going to work, and that's that's oh, going to be the most. That's of- what's going on right now, Jack. Yeah, and, but they're trying to tr- they're trying to no, torque it around. No, to they're, only they're trying to they're they're supporting more than one at a time. If you think about the technologies that we've got out there for air traffic control and instrument approach uh, uh, use. We're still we we've still got NDBs out there that are in use and and part of the system, VORs in route that are still in use and part of the system, ILS systems that are still in use and part of the system, all of which can ultimately be replaced by something else down the road, and we got ADSB and Next Gen coming along to move the rock a little bit farther down the road. We've got multiple systems in play right now that all have to be tweaked to fit into this radar environment somehow or another. Uh, Not necessarily the radar environment, but the picture the controllers see. So we're supporting more than one system now. Yeah, and but they're trying to not support one. They're they're trying to change over to one technology that will, when it is completely implemented, be 35 years old. And that's crazy, if you ask me. But it won't Um, be 35 years old for aviation. Uh, well, it, well, it will be because it's like what? When's the deadline? The deadline's like twenty twenty or something like that, right? And um, the implement that, implementation that's deadline? actually still only a proposal. Uh, there's a whole lot of arguments going on to make full implementation in twenty fifteen. Yeah. In which okay. case, some of the yeah. some elements of the system are only effectively two or three years old right now. Wide area augmentation system, which took a lot of years to perfect, has only been widely available in the last three or four years. I mean, to a point of being an effective tool to produce new kind of instrument approaches and to make GPS uh, acceptable as a sole source of navigation. Uh, None of these things come along in the snap of a finger because... 
It takes years to develop the technology, and you're right, the industry moves faster than the FAA does because while the industry is moving the technology along, there also has to be the equipment to put in the airplane to make it usable, and the manufacturers of that can't just snap their fingers and have that happen overnight. Uh, somewhere along the line, it has to be proven, and I'll be the first to confess that some of this proving process could be moved along a little more quickly. Uh, I think in some instances a lot more quickly. But then once it's proven, it has to be reproduced and gotten into the system and into the airplanes. And that just doesn't happen. That's never going to happen as fast as technology can move. Uh, okay. I mean, you make a compelling point. I just, it, it just. If I understand you, because we were talking about MLS 25 years ago when a lot of visionaries in the general aviation and airline business already knew that GPS, yes, which was you know. barely a satellite or two at that time, right, was inevitably going to be superior to MLS and it was going to provide far more advantages. And we're still in the process of flushing out all that potential. Yeah. Just because the science doesn't move as quickly as you think it does, if you if if you need the science to actually move all the way through to being usable in the field and the people being equipped to use it, and and that's never going to happen on a practical term as fast as industry can move to the next new thing. Oh, I only it's have a, one it's thing a, to add. Yeah, what's that? Three words: follow the money. Oh, I thought you were going to say air conditioning. Um, well, no, that's that's two words. I'm just One glad word. he didn't say warm nuts. <laughs> oh, see, oh, never mind. Yeah, that's no, one I, of those I, inside pies. You know, we were we were so we're so we're spending the week in Wichita. We're having a good old time, and we're spending a lot of time hanging out with the lovely Annie. All right, and every now and then, one or one or two, you know, two or more of the three of us would like look at each other and and say something, and we'd just break down giggling like crazy. And and Annie kept saying, "Is that another one of your podcast jokes?" All right, <laughs> and that's what warm nuts is. It's another one of our podcast jokes. One of these days, we'll explain it to our listeners, <laughs> and they may or may not find it as entertaining as we do. Uh, jumping ahead here, David, uh, you. Uh, uh, I'm going to talk, give you a second to read to me, this. Both of you, talk to me in February. Yeah. <laughs> David, David, fast team tip of the week. Uh, oh, I, I, that, what were you, what you, were you know, going for here? Well, we, we, we so often, like we just spent the last 15 minutes did, doing, talk about all the high-tech stuff that's involved in flying. And then we've got uh, uh, a multitude of listeners flying much simpler stuff. Uh, like our old buddy Champ Guy out in Oregon, who, if memory serves, flies a little Aronka Champ with no electrical system. And he motors along with a handheld GPS and a handheld uh, 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 communications radio. So this week's FAA safety team tip, uh, under notice number NOTC 1943, uh, 1943, what a great year. We were at war. Uh, in this high-tech world, it says... It's easy to forget that some aircraft don't have radios. Yeah. <laughs> Even some new airplanes don't have radios. Go These aircraft can operate legally at non-towered airports. Also, pilots operating in non-towered airports may not have their radios set for the proper frequency. And we know we've, we've been a victim of that. 
They may not have it turned on. That's another issue. It, it may not work. Well, once saw a guy they out here. They may not at know how to use it. I once saw a guy out here at Jabara. He'd been doing touch and goes. Uh, I'd been listening to him for about fifty miles, and uh, uh, I'm coming in. It's visual. Uh, I got to drop somebody off there and then head back to the home field. And I'm on downwind, and I hear this. I hear nothing from this guy suddenly. Well, it wasn't the same guy. When I didn't hear anything from the airplane I saw in the pattern, I got a little concerned, and I extended the downwind leg. And when I turned base, I heard from the guy I'd been hearing. He was taxiing to the ramp. And I'm looking at an airplane on short final who's not talking. Mm -hmm. He proceeds to land. He rolls out to the middle of the runway and stops. (laughs) Yeah. Just stops. He's not talking to anybody. He's not moving. He's occupying space. He had the wrong frequency. In the radio, we found out later. Because it was a student pilot on a cross country who got himself so confused that it really wasn't, and I love this in retrospect, it really wasn't that he had the wrong frequency. He had the right frequency. He had the wrong airport. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, so this thing yeah, about, I've only known radio, so, you know, think bears, you know, thinking sometimes just because you don't hear somebody in a pattern, that's the lesson here. Doesn't mean that nobody's in the pattern. I've only done that once. I, I landed at my, uh, at the airport in, in Georgia that I learned to fly. Uh, I was, I was coming into it anyway. And uh, it had been years since I'd landed at the airport. And this was kind of like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going home again. You know, this is where I learned to do this. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this right. And, and all this kind of like, you know, dutifully dialed in 22.8 and go zooming in. And, and somebody at some airport, like, you know, 100 miles away, is on the frequency. He says, dude, you know, the, the such and such airport has changed its Unicom frequency. It's now such and such. And I'm like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> yeah. Oops. And, and, and I looked at the chart, and sure enough, they had changed it. And I go, I go, you know, twist the knob and, and go smoking in. But oh, oh um, habits die hard. I haven't done that since. Well, and, I'm it, sure. And the reason I put this up here was, you know, the 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 little you know smart ass remark that I made about it. It's, when you're going into an uncontrolled airport, and you shock, don't hear anything. Shock. It's like the common sense tip your parents gave you when you're about to cross the street. You look both ways. You always look both ways or something like that. And I even look both ways on one-way streets because every once in a while you read about some nummy who's in an accident because he was going the wrong way on a one-way street. So when you're going into an airport, just because you don't hear traffic doesn't mean that there's not necessarily somebody out there. Uh, no, t- what what do we call that? Uh, what's that nickname it's for called, no radio? I think, I think it's called an uncontrolled airport. Nordo. Non-powered airport. Moving on. Uh, so uh, this is just following up on a story that we talked about like a year ago. Thursday. What's that? Yeah. A year, over a year ago, a year ago, give or take, uh, reading from, uh, from Avweb, it says, uh, an arbitrator has ruled that the U.S. Airways pilot whose government issued gun accidentally went off in flight can have his job back. Jim, uh, Langenhan 
was fired after the 2008 incident, and his union is welcoming the arbitration decision. Quote, the company overreacted, union spokesman James Ray told uh, CBC News. Captain Langenhan has had a distinguished and untarnished record in his time at U.S. Airways. So uh, it turns out, I guess, that um, it was the holster all along, um, or the gun lock, I guess, the trigger lock, right? And uh, Well, it's a combination, and, and we posted a link to the video that showed a really stupid design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so. it, 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 the, the, that, that whole system was typical of the era. Yeah. Uh, we can over... We can over-design everything and make it as stupid and complicated as possible because the people in charge of it didn't want pilots carrying guns, so they tried to make it as untenable as possible, and this was a result. Yeah. So uh, we won't rehash. I feel strongly. Yeah, I know. We won't totally rehash the story, although it would be interesting to know whether or not they're still using these same uh, holster trigger lock combinations. Uh, well, and I, and I hope Mr. Langenham got back pay. I, that was my other question as well. Yeah, I, it does, the story doesn't go into that detail, but uh, it would seem to me that he's entitled. Um, so uh, that's a good thing. Um, Here's a little throw, um, I don't know, call it a throwaway story, but uh, I'm not sure where to go with this except to point it out. And that, um, So this was from a story uh, that I came across while I was sitting in Jeb's dining room, because uh, that's where my little office... That's a great place to come up with stories. ...where my little office was while I was visiting. Um, this is from uh, a... Uh, Let's see now. I, I believe it was a story I found on Google News, but in any event, um, this is from an AP story, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, a federal judge has ruled uh, that New Mexico officials can keep U.S. Airways from serving alcohol on its New Mexico flights after a passenger caused a drunk driving crash, crash and killed five people. The point of the story, as I understand it, is that this judge has ruled that um, that a state can legislate and try to control the use of the drinking of liquor while these airplanes are traveling over the state of New Mexico. This is not simply while they're on the ground, all right? And uh, uh, this is a kind of a slippery slope thing that somebody ought to jump on. There's already precedent for this, and, and this is going to get overturned right. if the courts adhere to precedent. Precedent that they can't do this is what you're saying. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah. That, Once that, upon a time... A state attorney general here in the fine state of Kansas uh, told the airlines that because of Kansas's archaic liquor laws that existed at the time, they were not allowed to serve drinks when in the airspace above Kansas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that went down. Yeah, I mean, there's been all sorts of of uh, of, of cases where uh, uh, municipalities and whatnot have tried to legislate um, aircraft in the air over their town, and it's been been shot down. Uh, as a matter of fact, I learned one. Uh, um, oh, don't say shot down. Yeah, I know the legislation. Yeah, really. The legislation was shot down. Um, I discovered one that I haven't followed up on. I'm going to follow up on it, um, and so this is. Uh, Unofficial, but uh, I was I was up at the Sanford Airport the other day, and uh, chatting with some folks who who told me that that the city of Sanford, Maine, apparently has a municipal regulation saying that um, basically saying that n- uh, no radio operations in and out of San- Sanford Airport are against the law, and uh, they also went on to say, say that again that that there's a city there's a there's a, a town of Sanford, Maine 
municipal regulation saying that you may not operate in and out of Sanford Airport, no radio. Right? Um, okay. And the uh, person said that it's in fact not not enforced, but in any event, you know, my response was, no, 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 towns can't make these kinds of laws. We've seen this right. over and over right. again. Um, and, uh, it's called a local rule, and, and there's, there's a lot of them at various airports around the country. I, I've related the story, I believe, of uh, one of the local rules at uh, Meg's Field, the now-closed Meg's Field in Chicago. Um, who'd have thunk it that the wind was blowing in off the lake one day? You know? Yeah. Uh-huh. And Apparently, they had a local rule at the time that uh, uh, single-engine airplanes uh, were prohibited from taking off or landing, I guess, for that matter, um, if the wind, if the crosswind component was 20 knots and at 90, or 20 knots, essentially. Um, Multi-engine aircraft, 30 knots. Uh, Well, of course, the day I was trying to get out of there, it was 21 or 22 knots. And um, I talked to the tower. I said, what's the deal here? And um, he said, why don't you call me back on this line that's not taped? So I called him back on this line that's not taped. And he says, look, you know, it's a local rule. You're not violating any regulations. I can clear you to take off at your, at your own risk. My job is to separate traffic on the runway. That's, that's really easy to do. I said, okay, fine. And that's what, exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, the FAA, the federal government, the federal laws, federal regulations take precedence over the over the state and local laws. Yeah, and, I was going to say, uh, the, the judge here made a mistake in her first finding, according to the well, story. First, she may found or may Mexico not. has concurrent jurisdiction with the federal government over events occurring in its airspace. He, he and, may or may not have made a mistake. You have to consider, you know, he, he really, and I don't know the guy, and I don't know the, the, really the facts of the case here either. Uh, but he can only really rule on the evidence presented him. And it strikes me that whoever was arguing the airline's case um, uh, maybe, you know, didn't, didn't really do the job. Yeah. I don't know. Well, it, w- it, w- it wouldn't have hurt if the, uh, uh, the judge, uh, uh, M. Christina Armillo, had uh, checked precedent and checked case law on this, and black letter law, for that matter, that has said for decades and has been affirmed by courts over and over again that above a certain altitude, the FAA, the federal government's rules are preeminent. They preempt all sorts of local stuff. Uh, second, the, uh, the uh, uh, New Mexico authority to regulate liquor moving through its territory is absolutely true, but that territory doesn't extend to the airspace where she said it does, and that's been affirmed again and again in courts, and it's in black letter law that above a certain point, it's federal airspace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The laws are preempted by what the feds say, right? And that includes numerous occasions of states trying to regulate control, restrict, or ban, as in the case of the old attorney general in Kansas, the serving of liquor when aircraft are moving through its airspace. And the liquor cabinet goes away, and the serving stops well before the aircraft enters the pattern and lands. So it never gets down into that airspace serving alcohol. Uh, The most the judge could do, is, in my mind, is possibly say, well, you, you're no longer allowed to bring airport uh, alcohol into the state, period. 
because you aren't controlling what you're doing before you get here. And even that's in conflict with federal air regulations. If they're allowed to leave with the alcohol on board, they're not allowed to take it off the airplane locally. Yeah. What should one do? So uh, let's suppose that I discover that Santa... How about avoid New Mexico? Yeah, well, I mean, that's why you can't make these laws, because it would turn into this this cacophony, this 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 crazy oh, yeah. quilt of, you know, you know, you know you're going to plan your routes in order to not fly over a particular state. Well, that's nuts. You know, that's just like, that's that's the whole point of having interstate commerce rules, as I understand it, you know, is that... Well, so, that's been that's been the, the, the philosophy for, well, I don't know, uh, 200-plus years? Yeah, yeah. But but here's a more practical question. Um, so suppose I discover that Sanford, Maine, does in fact have a law in the books that says you cannot operate no radio in or out of Sanford. What should I do? Should I just kind of like don't worry about it? Or should I, I don't know, I was thinking I'd drop it down. Are, are you enrolled in, here, here's my sales pitch of the night. Yeah. Have you... Have you considered enrolling in the AOPA Legal Services Plan? Yeah, well, no, I'm not enrolled, but I am considering it. Although, I mean, simpler than that, I mean... Don't I was... fly away from home without it. Uh, that's your... That's your. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's a get-out-of-jail-cheaper card. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because if you did that, and Sanford, Maine, decided to try to enforce this... Uh, I have no questions that the legal services plan would cover your right cover your need to go to 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 Sanford court and then state of Maine court and then onward and upward. Second, I have no doubt whatsoever that a number of alphabet groups would join in your defense. Right. But I'm not talking about that, you know, like I flew in or out no radio and got busted. I'm talking about I never fly no radio, but I just discovered this law existed, and I think it's bogus. Should I, should I, I what I was going to do, what I was thinking I would do if I discover, if I confirm that the law ex- actually exists, is I was going to track down my AOPA airport rep for Sanford, Maine. And not start, a bad idea. Start there, all right? And it would seem to me that I could get, you know, I don't know, AOPA or somebody to write a letter to the town saying, no, 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 you can't do that. You know, AOPA can write all the letters they want. Uh, The town's probably not going to do anything with them, Uh, but AOPA can get the FAA to write a letter. Well, okay. Well, and and in fact, putting putting all that aside for the moment, um, if if you've flown in and out of there, however often, um, and um, you don't know anything about this. You're going to have to research it, okay? There's a duty that the city or the community has if they're going to put a restriction on something. There's a duty they have to make it known that this, this in this case, I presume it's an ordinance, that this ordinance even exists. Yeah. And just if they don't have wondering. a big billboard up at the airport and they don't have stuff in in the FAA database relative to airport information, like then in no they're not... They're not trying to enforce this. Yeah. So they're not notifying people about it. I would ignore it, and, and well, which, it is, is, which is basically what it deserves. That, that's, it's, it, i, I got to go with Jeb here. Uh, it kind of falls under the let sleeping dogs lie heading in one vein. And in another vein, if you did go doing research on this, I would start with AOPA and ask the question, have you guys ever dealt with this? Because, in fact, it may be true that this was dealt with many right. years ago, right? 
when the ordinance came on the books and somebody said, Whiskey Tangle, Foxtrot, question, question, question. Uh, and a letter got written and attorneys exchanged conversations and the, uh, the, the powers that be learned that there was no way in hell they could enforce this and just abandon it rather than repealing the reg, which would be an admission of error, which wouldn't look good when they were running for city council again the next time. The so they reasons. just let it die. In other words, the, the ordinance is on the books, but they know they can't enforce it and make it stick. So they just let it die quietly, and then they could say, well, you see, we made sure these guys are safe. Never mentioning that, you know, they are basically eunuchs, turn, you know, tending the harem. Yeah. All the more reason why. No, no, no. All the more reason why I want, okay, I want this. Okay, there, there's the title for this episode. I'm Unix sorry. Tending the harem. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to have to figure out how to spell E-U-N-I-C-H-S. Oh uh, okay, uh, David, let's wrap this thing up here. Uh, speaking of yes, AOPA, sir. you wanted to say some nice things, or, or you, you were commenting on AOPA's take on uh, where some of this federal money has been spent. Well, uh, you know, a uh, Two or three episodes back, when we were being regularly beaten about the head and shoulders, runway thresholds, ramps, and taxiways by the uh, uh, misinformed folks at USA Today, or the refused to be well informed folks at USA Today, that's really the better way to put it. Uh, AOPA was doing some pushback, and among the pushbacks was a little story that they ran on their website, and, and I'm sure show ups elsewhere about Indianapolis Executive Airport in Zionsville, Indiana, who was the beneficiary of some of the uh, uh, federal recovery, America Recovery and Reinvestment Act monies that was made available for what were essentially shovel-ready projects. This was a project that was already in the pipeline. It got moved up considerably because of the availability of this money, $1.1 billion to be spent on infrastructure and improvements. And some of that money went to improvements that were needed at this airport. And this, wow, this money actually created jobs. It put people to work. It improved the infrastructure. It improved an airport. And, wow, that's just horrible that we're doing <laughs> things like that that make things better I'm, in the I'm, world. I'm, we should yes, be ignoring sure. this and, 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 and letting it all go down the tubes because, oh, my God, that's so much better for the airlines who will never freaking fly into Zionsville, but who want it to be neglected because if they can't make a penny out of it, nobody else should. So, boy, did that one. I know. I, no kidding. No kidding. All right. We'll put a link to that story. How, in how, the, how uh, do you really feel? In the show notes. Um, let's see now. So what else? Uh, and it's bad enough that Jack was talking about crabbing earlier, and that just made me freaking hungry. <laughs> shout outs. Anybody got any shout outs here? Quick and dirty one to the uh, nice folks at the uh, Florida Air Museum. And I'm being told that that link no longer works. No, no, I see why it's not working. T- tell, okay. the, tell the story, and we'll fix the link. Well, the oh, uh, uh, the uh, good folks at the Florida Air Museum got a, uh, a $10,000 grant from some folks called History, all uppercase, and uh, $10,000 for the Save Our History project to work with students on an exhibit commemorating what was, and some of you might not know this, the world's first airline service, scheduled airline service, that was launched on January 1, 1914, 
with a Benoit Model 14 flying boat. I've written about this for other publications in the past. And the airline flew all the way across Tampa Bay from Tampa to St. Pete and back. And it was called the Tampa-St. Pete Airboat Line. It actually carried passengers, I think it was about five bucks. And think about that in terms of 1914 money. That was probably a couple of weeks' pay for a lot of people. Five bucks to get shuttled across Tampa Bay and saving hours of driving. So uh, the uh, some students in the uh, school system there around Lakeland are going to have a hand in creating exhibits at the Florida Air Museum at Sun and Fun to commemorate this. And in you know in less than uh, five years, we'll be celebrating the hundredth anniversary of the world's first formal scheduled airline service. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. The uh, the link uh, is uh, simply saveourhistory.com. Save our history, one word. Saveourhistory.com. And uh, cool stuff. Anybody, anything mm. else? Jeb, you got any shout-outs? I don't tonight. Just, uh, again, basking in the glow of getting my magazine done. Yeah, cool. Me neither. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm all set. Well, that's it. Time to stick a fork in this one. Uh, Jeb Burnside uh, is an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? I hope it doesn't come as a shock to you to learn that you can find me on the Internet at aviationsafetymagazine.com, jeburnside.com, occasionally at uh, um, uh, avweb.com, and, of course, uncontrolled airspace on occasion. There you go. Uh, and uh, Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, DaveHigdon.biz or uh, AviationSafety.com or AvBuyer.com or AEA.net or turn over a rock or just Google Dave Ignan and ignore the physics and golf writers. There you go. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. Matter of fact, you can find all of us from time to time on the uh, Uncontrolled Airspace Forums pages. That's right. That's right. Big thanks, uh, as usual, to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Um, we're having I'm having lunch with Jeff on uh, on Friday. Uh, we're we're meeting up at uh, the Northampton Airfield uh, over on the coast here, and uh, going to go to their cool little restaurant right there by this edge of the grass field, and uh, and have some lunch. So thanks to Jeff uh, for helping us out with the show notes. Thanks to uh, Mike Morgan and Royce Earl, and to the many other listeners who have created the show opening disclaimer clips. Uh, and I may meet up with Mike Morgan in a, in a few. He doesn't know this yet, but uh, uh, I'm actually headed back to Indianapolis in a few weeks, and uh, that's where Mike's from. And hopefully, I'm going to get a chance to uh, to get together with Mike while while I'm in Indianapolis. Maybe a meetup. Huh? That'd be kind of cool. We're also very grateful for the financial support that we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget that you can visit with us all at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, were you going to say something? If you want to live long and happy, go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. That's right. That's enough talking. Let's go flying. I was in an airport recently where they had a sign up that said that. I, I, I took a picture of it. I don't remember with which camera, 
I've got to download it one of yeah. these days and put that up on the, on the site. Anyway, um, TTFN. <laughs> <laughs>